Lord, thank you for your church. Thank you for the fact that through your son we can be a part of his body, that we can be members one of another, that we can be part of a living organism that brings glory to the Son of God that is his bride. We also, too, are grateful for your word. We want to thank you for uh, the section here in Ephesians 5 that you have given us to help us to know how we may please you in our lives in the area of purity as well. And I pray, Lord, that you would speak this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have been talking about the Reformation this month. Um, Ed has brought up several individuals. And when you think of the Reformation, you do think of Luther and and Calvin and Zwingli and Knox. And as Ed pointed out this morning, though, they, they weren't the... Those guys were more like the trunk and the leaves of the tree. But the root of the tree of the Reformation was really in men like Augustine, as Ed mentioned. In fact, Augustine had a profound impact on Calvin and Luther in particular. Augustine's teachings on grace and original sin, and particularly the sovereignty of God and salvation, had a huge influence on those men. In fact, Augustine's influence was so great that B.B. Warfield said, it is Augustine who gave us the Reformation, even though he lived 1,100 years before Martin Luther was born. And I mentioned Augustine, and I, it's funny this morning, you know, I talked to Ed about it. He was, he was going to talk about someone else this morning. But I told him, you know, I was looking at Augustine and bringing him up. So he said, well, I can talk about Augustine. So he did. Um, so we, we love Ed. Appreciate that. But Augustine was one of the men that I thought of this morning, not just because of his connection to and the foundation of the Reformation. Augustine, the text that we are looking at this morning, is also something that he struggled with. Augustine had a, a huge struggle and enslavement to lust. In fact, in his autobiography called Confessions, which I'd encourage you to read, he tells of his enslavement when he says that he was chained not with another's chains, but with my own iron will. For my will had been perverted and had manufactured lust. The more I gave in to lust, the more it developed into a habit. And when I failed to check the habit, it became a necessity. These were all the links in the chain that had me enslaved. In fact, Augustine was well known for his confession as a young man that he would pray this prayer. Give me chastity and give me self-control, but not yet. Right? He, he knew the struggle. He knew God was real. He believed in God. He knew the scriptures well. But he also knew that in order to place his life in Christ's hands, in order to submit himself to the lordship of Christ, he would have to be willing to give up his lust. He'd have to be willing to give up his immorality. And he didn't want to do that. And so he would pray this way, Lord, give me these things, but not right now, because I want this more than I want you. In fact, he did so, lived a life of immorality, lived with uh, another woman for a number of years, and then another. But at the age of 32, there was a professor that he had a great deal of respect for, and he heard about this professor of rhetoric, I believe, who got saved. And a person was telling him this man's testimony. And as he did, Augustine became... Troubled within his own soul, it reminded him of the fact that he had not made a commitment and he was struggling again with this idea of giving up his sin for Christ and not being able to do that, but knowing that he needed to. And he was in great turmoil to the point of weeping at this point. And as he sat there in this struggle, he heard a child in another building chanting, pick up and read, pick up and read, pick up and read. 
Now, he hadn't heard this before. He didn't know if the kid was uh, singing some rhyme or playing, uh, playing some game. But, but what he took it as is God was telling him to pick up the Bible and read it. And so there happened to be uh, some of the epistles of the Apostle Paul within the place that he was at. And so he picked up the Bible. And these are the words that his eyes first fell upon. Romans thirteen thirteen. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. And at that very moment, the sword of the Spirit pierced his own soul and he repented. On the spot, the Word of God opened his eyes and he realized by the Holy Spirit that He needed to turn and repent from his lust and place his trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. The power of the gospel had broken his bondage. Now, Augustine still struggled with lust, but he was free from it. There was still a temptation that that would plague him from time to time, and he was still in that battle. And if you are truly saved, then like Augustine, you too understand that experience. You too understand that we are still tempted by sexual immorality. But like Augustine... That doesn't mean that the, the temptation has to, to win over, right? He found freedom within his life, and we can too. And last week, we ended our time talking about the first step to freedom from immorality. You remember what that was? It's the first thing we need to do. First hour got a lot faster, guys. Come on. When we are in sin, what do we need to do? First, confess it, right? We need to turn to God and admit That we have sinned against him and with a broken and contrite heart come before him and beg for his forgiveness. And I encouraged and exhorted you last week to to do that. And also to take the difficult step of confessing that sin to a brother or sister in Christ. To bring it out into the light so that the power of that sin would diminish. And I heard uh, that some of you this week took that step. That you did open up and share something that had been hidden in your life and that God has blessed that. But I know there are some here probably that you felt the twinge of conviction and you put it off. You know, I need to talk to somebody about this. I need to let them know so I can have accountability in this area of my life. But you haven't done it yet. You've let a week go by. Don't keep delaying or you won't experience freedom. You may never break free. And while confession is the first and the necessary step in the process of freedom from sexual immorality... It's not the only step. You know, if all we had to do in regards to our sin was to confess, then we'd have no need for pretty much most of the New Testament epistles, right? All the instruction that they give us there, we would just need like maybe one one paragraph, one chapter. Say, yes, as a believer, you will sin. You need to confess your sin and God will forgive you. See, that's not the case, is it? We have several letters in the New Testament that talk about that. If, we, if all we needed was just to know that we need to confess our sin, then 1 John chapter 1 would be enough. See, the fact of the matter is that we need more instruction. It isn't just confession. That is, again, necessary and critical and important. And if you don't confess, we don't get anywhere. But I want to encourage and remind you that The fact of the matter is, a lot of Christians live that way. They think, all I need to do is confess. I feel terrible about this sin, and I know I need to go to the Lord and admit to Him, and I I have, and I've come to Him with a broken heart. I've come to Him weeping, and I just ask, God, help me. Please forgive me. And then I I feel the, the guilt off of my back. I feel my heart cleansed. 
But then I give in, give in again to temptation. I can't seem to break free of it. And a lot of people live in that place because I, I don't think they understand the process of full repentance. And confession is the first step in that process. But there's more. There are other steps. There are other things that we need to do so that we may demonstrate complete repentance. For you see, it isn't just let go and let God. It is let go and keep going. Let go by your confession. But then keep going. Keep pursuing all the steps of repentance. And if this sounds like a workspace sanctification, that's not the case at all. Because there's a means in which God displays His grace in our lives as we battle sin. And that means is through confession and then through several other steps, several other principles that we need to follow and understand in order to exhibit complete repentance and full repentance. And here in Ephesians 5, Paul lays out for us five principles or five steps of repentance. Five things that we need to follow to to gain freedom from sexual immorality. So please stand as I read from Ephesians chapter 5 and I will begin in verse 3. God says, But do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore... Do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible When they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Amen. You may be seated. Well, Paul, again, gives here five principles to experience freedom from sexual immorality. And those are to cultivate contentment, to realize the wrath, to feed not the flesh, to live in the light, and to make purity a mission. And what I want to do is kind of picture this, these five principles maybe is like we're going to go on a hike together. All right, we're going to go up in the trails here in the hills. And uh, we've already entered in through the gate of confession. And now we're going to go to five different locations, five different milestones along this path. And we've got to go to each one because each one of these principles is important to understand and to apply in order to find freedom from sexual immorality. So let's go to the first milestone here on our path. And that is in verses 3 and 4 to cultivate contentment cultivate contentment as i was reading these verses i what came to my mind was that sesame street song have you heard of one of these things is not like the other right where you have maybe like if you watch sesame street you know you have like three tennis shoes and a boot you know or they'd have a a picture of you know four letters and a number you're supposed to kind of figure out what's different here what doesn't fit what doesn't seem to go here and that came to me as I was reading this list of things that Paul gives as he's talking about sexual immorality. He says in verse 3, But immorality or impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, but rather giving of thanks. And then in verse 5, No immoral or impure person or covetous man. 
And if all these terms are related to sexual immorality, then how do greed and, and covetous man and giving thanks fit in? In fact, Paul does the same thing in Colossians 3, 5 when he says, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, evil desire, passion. And then he says, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. So he lists here impurity, passion, evil desire, immorality. And then again, he, he throws in this additional word, greed. What's going on here? What's the connection between greed or coveting and sexual immorality? And knowing the answer to that question is vital to conquering lust because in it, Paul is revealing something. When he calls the immoral person a covetous man, what he's saying is that at the core of sexual sin is greed. If you were to pull up the weed of immorality and look at the root, the root you would find there is the root of coveting, the sin of coveting, of wanting, demanding, desiring something that God has chosen not to give you. You remember the 10th commandment, right? What is it? Let's say it in old King James way. Thou shalt not covet, right? Thou shalt not covet. And God didn't stop there, did he? He added some examples, some specifics. And one of the examples he says is thou shalt not covet your neighbor's wife. You see, even there, God shows the connection between coveting and sexual immorality. Because greed doesn't just have as its object money, right? It's not just you can be greedy for money or possessions or power or fame. You can also be greedy for sexual immorality. In fact, Paul is showing us here it drives immorality. It's interwoven to it. And you don't have to be single to struggle with it, right? Married people struggle just as much, if not more, with impurity. Because having sex, even if it's biblically legal in marriage, doesn't drive immorality away. In fact, that's because the problem is... Is greed. The main issue is the fact that you're not content with what God has given. Marriage will not solve immorality if you don't deal with a covetous heart. Brothers and sisters, understanding that can be a game changer in how you deal with immorality in your life and in your heart because you don't attack immorality simply by turning off the computer or the television or closing the novel you shouldn't be reading or by looking away when you shouldn't be looking. That's not how you attack immorality. You attack it by dealing with a greedy heart. Listen, you're not going to conquer lust in your life until you learn to be content. Look at verse 5 again. Notice Paul says, The covetous man who is a... Idolater, right? An idolater. That's what coveting is at its heart. It is self-worship. It is placing myself and what I want above God, right? I deserve this. What I want is more important than what God wants. I need this. It is just for me to have this because I am so important. Because I matter so much. Sexual immorality is saying that I must have sex to be happy to feel fulfilled, to find comfort and meaning. But really, what does immorality do? It draws us away from being able to see and experience the majesty and the beauty of God. In fact, I like how John Piper put it when he said, it's hard to save her beauty from a garbage dump. Can you stand in an adult bookstore and look through the window and be moved by the beauty of a setting sun? You want to be free from immorality? Do you want to see a beautiful sunset? Then you need to be convinced that that sunset is not sex. It's God. 
Intimacy is not something that you need to be happy. Only God can fill that gap. And until God is the focus of your affection, you're never going to be content. Until God is the one in whom you find your satisfaction, you'll continue to covet. Until your relationship with Christ is what gives you joy. Until He is the object of your love and affection, you will struggle with greed. You will struggle with immorality. We need to heed Paul's words, his own personal testimony in Philippians 4.11. For Paul was a man who struggled with coveting. If you remember Romans 7, he confessed that. He said, you know, when he talked about the law exposing sin, and he said, I wouldn't know about coveting if it weren't for the law. Thanks a lot, God. Now I know I'm in sin. And then in the rest of Romans 7, or the next few verses, he talks about that inner struggle and turmoil, and he's doing the thing he doesn't want to do, and he's not doing the thing that he should be doing and wants to do. You know what the main issue he was struggling with there? I think it was coveting. But then in Philippians 4, listen to what he says. I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I'm in. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. And then here's the key. It says in verse 13, I can do all things, even have freedom from sexual immorality, in deed and in thought. I can do all things through Christ through him who strengthens me and Paul here wasn't trying to sound you know poetic and wax eloquent about that this will be a nice sounding thing to throw in here I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me no he is sharing very practically this is how I've learned contentment it's through Jesus it is through him you see Paul learned that that God and not things are what he needed God had taught him through many trials in his own life that it is in the Lord that we need to have our satisfaction and love, not in possessions. Make the passion of your life to love God. And this happens how? How's that cultivated in our hearts, an affection for Christ? Spending time with Him, right? Dwelling in His Word. Prayer, consistent and faithful prayer. Fellowshipping with other children of God. On a consistent basis. Telling others about Jesus. Obeying even when it's difficult and hard. And again, Paul struggled with coveting. But then he had learned that he could be content in whatever circumstances he was in. I like what Jeremiah Burroughs said. A Christian comes to contentment not so much by way of addition as by way of subtraction. What he meant by that is you be content by not adding to what you want, but by taking away from it. Because you see, the problem is we keep trying to, let, to raise what we possess to the level of our desires. Instead of lowering our desires to the level of what we possess. We need to ask God to help bring our heart to our circumstances. Not our circumstances to our heart. See the connection? It's important that we understand this. Whether you're married or not, whether intimacy in your marriage is where you'd like it to be or not. You can be content in whatever circumstances you're in. Or else, this isn't true. But we know that it is. You can be content, why? Because God is enough. Because God is enough. So cultivate contentment by focusing your worship on God. You can also cultivate it by nurturing a grateful heart. Look again at verse 4. 
There must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, but rather giving of thanks. Giving of thanks. Now, that seems kind of random, doesn't it? What, what is that doing there? I mean, does that mean Paul's saying, okay, if I hear a dirty joke or someone's saying so, I need to start saying thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I mean, what, how does this fit? What's the connection? I mean, I, I never really got or understood why did Paul put giving thanks here right after those other words until I understood the link between discontentment and immorality. Then it made sense. See, what Paul's doing is he's trying to remind us of something, right? Because immoral speech and actions come from what kind of heart? I said it earlier, a greedy heart, right? A discontent heart. And what is a characteristic of a discontent heart? Is that a heart that is constantly expressing gratitude? No, no. And see, Paul's saying rather than focus on your discontentment and what you don't have that you want, you need to focus your attention on being thankful for what God has given you. You need to cultivate a thankful heart. Again, as Jeremiah Burroughs said, bring your expectations down, not your wants up. And gratitude changes our whole perspective on things, doesn't it? I mean, how often, how often do you thank God? How often do you specifically just spend time thanking Him, being grateful? Do you live with a sense of entitlement or, or do you truly thank God for each paycheck, each meal, your friendships, a parking space? Here in Burbank, that's something to be thankful for. A coupon, a chance to sleep in, a place to sleep, clothing, a beautiful day. I mean, when is the last time that you thank God for your health, for your family, for your church, for your spouse? You know, what I encourage you to do is, what I've liked to do is I take a quiet time, or try to take a quiet time each week. And all I do is just list things I'm thankful for. And just write them down. And then take that list and go to God in prayer. And rather than, I don't ask for anything. Just express my gratitude for the things that he's given. You know what that does? If you do that on a consistent basis, what do you think that's going to cultivate within you? Appreciation, right? Again, it's not just words and not duty. I need to thank God for it. Okay, this is my thank God time today. No. Because as you reflect on all the things that he has given you, how could it not but cultivate a thankful heart? So you need to do that. Being thankful is, is not easy in our culture, is it? be made so difficult because we have so much then we expect so much right i mean it's like as, as if fast food wasn't delivered enough you know when you go in there now you see they have little timers next to the drive through window don't they it's like 45 seconds isn't quick enough you got to get it to them in 30 and i'm thinking do, do we really want food that's been prepared that fast <laughs> right but but that's our culture it's like do it quick now do it quicker now do it quicker or you have much so have more have more right? So that makes it hard. That makes it hard to give attention to thanking God for the things that he's given without having the attitude or desire for wanting more. And for you who are married, let me encourage you to, on a regular basis, thank God for your spouse. Thank God for things about your spouse. Because if you don't cultivate a thankful heart for your spouse, you're going to continue or struggle with discontentment in your marriage, and that will lead you on one path, and that is a path to immorality. 
that brings us to the third way to cultivate contentment. Uh, we find it in Proverbs 5. So turn there with me for a moment. Solomon, of all people, wrote much about sexual immorality, particularly in the Proverbs. He wrote several chapters devoted to sexual purity and also had several other individual Proverbs that he brings it up. And here in chapter 5, he talks about this whole topic. And the first part of chapter 5, he focuses on the, the dangers of immorality and why we need to flee. But then in the middle of chapter 5 of Proverbs, uh, uh, verse 15, excuse me, of chapter 5, this is what Solomon says. Drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. You know Solomon's point here? It's a very simple one. Enjoy your spouse. Enjoy your spouse. Gain refreshment and satisfaction from your relationship with him or with her as, a, as cool water from a well on a hot day. You know, I was raised on a, in the mountains and we had a well water. And let me tell you, that was refreshing. And that's what the point he's giving here. And he's speaking to, a, to his son, so he's talking about a husband toward a wife. But the principle applies in the other direction as well. And he's saying here to rejoice. He says, rejoice in your wife. Be, be captivated by her love. Enjoy her body. And the message here is one of the means of, that God has given for us to find contentment. Not the only means, but one of them is that if you are married, one of the helpful things in your battle with sexual purity is to enjoy the physical and the emotional affection with your spouse. You see, because making love with your spouse is not dirty. Actually, it is something that can glorify God. In fact, it is something that can be done in the throne room of God. And if that sounds shocking or repulsive or not right, you know why that is? That's because our culture has so cheapened and degraded and abused sex that we see it as something as dirty and wrong. But within marriage, as an expression of the oneness and preciousness of that relationship, it honors God to have that affection with your spouse. Sex isn't bad or sinful. It's a gift. It's a gift by God for marriage. And as I said before, right, intimacy is an outward expression of an inward reality that reflects the, the oneness, the companionship, the friendship, how God sees marriage. Now, if intimacy is a struggle for you in your marriage, I'll put some resources on our website that I think you'll find helpful. And there's a lot more to say about this, but we need to move on to the next principle First principle is to experience freedom from immorality. That is to cultivate contentment. The second one is in verses 5 and 6, to realize the wrath. Now, we've talked about this before, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. We talked about it last week, but let me just read what Paul says here. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Paul here says in two different ways, right? How does God feel about sexual immorality? He's not pleased with it, is he? In fact, anyone in ongoing, unrepentant immorality, God says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. That if you struggle with unrepentant immorality, if that's a characteristic in your life, God's saying, then you're not a child of God because a child of God would not be 
doing that. He says also that God's anger comes upon sons of disobedience. So again, the point here is, if you're saved, if you're a child of God, why would you keep doing the things that God isn't pleased with? Why would you keep doing things that that make Him angry? That bring His anger and His wrath and His judgment? Because sexual immorality does not characterize the saved. it, It characterizes the lost. If you truly love the Lord, then you wouldn't tolerate anything in your life that that you know God hates. And that's why we need to realize the wrath. That's why we need to remind ourselves of it. Not again as if you're a Christian and you're struggling with immorality, that's hanging over your head as a judgment that God's going to pull salvation from you, but as a a reminder and encouragement and exhortation that this is something our Father disapproves of. This is something our, our Father hates that angers Him. And it's also a good opportunity to check. If I'm in ongoing immorality and I have no desire to change really, I've made no effort to change really, then these verses should tell me, maybe Paul's talking about me here. If that's the case, like Augustine, you too need to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh, meaning seek His forgiveness. Confess to Him. Tell Him, Lord, I want to be done with this. I'm struggling with it. I don't know how. It's such a strong pull in my life, but I know, I know that I'm in bondage to it. And I know that it's going to, the chain, the other side of that chain is connected to hell. Jesus Christ can break that chain. His blood is acidic. It will cut right through that chain and give you freedom. But you have to confess and be willing to turn from that sin and place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will gladly grant forgiveness. The third principle we need to look at here is feed not the flesh. Look at verse 7. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Then in verse 11, he repeats the idea. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. Partaker here, participate has the idea of being an accomplice in a plot, partnering with someone else. Them is referring to the sons of disobedience from verse 6. So Paul is simply saying here that unbelievers are, or believers are not to be involved with any activity, any person that smacks of immorality. Bad company does indeed what? Corrupt good morals. So consider not only who you hang out with, again, but what you watch, what you listen to, what you read, the circumstances you put yourself in. You must cut off every channel of temptation. Just like Augustine found in Romans 13, 14. Make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. That simply means don't, don't make a plan. Don't allow for an opportunity for your lusts to, pursue, to be pursued. So let me ask you a question. Have you placed, I want you to think about this. Have you placed or are there any safeguards at all in your life regarding sexual temptation? Any. If not, you're making provision for the flesh. You know, never, it never ceases to amaze me how little we fear our own hearts. It, it never ceases to amaze me how little we are concerned with what we are capable of doing. When I was in seminary, one of my professors, who was actually a founding professor of the, of the seminary, was caught in a one-year adulterous relationship with someone he was counseling. This was a professor at the Master's Seminary. And I've known many men in the ministry who thought they could handle it, but who didn't heed the words of Paul to make no provision. You know, if, you're, if you don't have a plan 
to make no provision, if you're not thinking about this and placing safeguards in your life, then you're just like that knucklehead in Proverbs 7 that Solomon talks about. Remember that guy? He was the naive one who was out wandering the streets at night. Solomon's looking out his window and, hey, son, come over here. Check that dude out. Look what he's doing. And he's wandering around the twilight and the evening toward, Solomon says, her house. And he becomes prey for the huntress. Solomon describes it this way, passing through the street near her corner. He takes it away to her house in the twilight in the evening, in the middle of the night. And behold, a woman comes to meet him. Every time I read this verse, I think of the, you know, when you're on a website or something and, and an ad pops up or scrolls by. I think of this verse. Get off the website. With her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. And suddenly, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool. Until an arrow pierces his liver, as a bird hastens to the snare, so he does not know that it will cost him his life. Don't be that guy. Don't wander aimlessly on the streets of temptation. This guy put himself in position for maximum temptation. And we can do that too. You can do that by watching something you know you shouldn't be watching. Or looking at something that you know, well, this isn't pornography, but you know it's close enough. Or by reading books that they're not outright immoral, but they dance around the edges. Or by being alone in a room with internet access. Or hanging out with those who talk about sex or make jokes about it. Or by drinking too much or using drugs which inhibit your self-control. You can do this by being alone with someone who is not your spouse or by interacting with them via email or friending them on Facebook or texting or chatting online with no accountability. If that person is not your spouse, then don't do it. You need to stop it. Stop before it's too late. And if you think I'm being too extreme, these things are not harmless. I can refer you to several people that I know who just by a simple click of the button to confirm a friend an old flame, perhaps, found themselves not only involved in an adulterous relationship, but also destroying their family. Just by one click of the button, begin the process. Fear your own heart. Fear it. Fear what you can do apart from the grace of God. Proverbs 7 began with an innocent note or Facebook message. It began with a phone call. And all of a sudden, the guy's in the sack with another man's wife. Don't be stupid. Don't be too proud to think you would never, I'd never do such a thing. I knew that seminary professor. I was in a small group with him. He would have never said in one of those meetings, yes, I'm planning probably in a couple of years, I think I'm going to commit adultery. Make no provision. For the flesh. Remember, brothers and sisters, I said this last week. We're in a what? We're in a war, right? And not just with Satan. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.11, Abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against your soul. Our own lusts are in a battle for our soul. Your flesh is your enemy. Make no provision for it. Put on your shoes, join Joseph's track club, and Run! From any temptation. Flee. Feed not the flesh. We used to have a joke about that in college. It was a serious joke that, you know, I'm part of Joseph's 
the Joseph Track Club. We always had this policy of looking at our shoes when we were on campus. Because I was at UCLA in the summer times. Believe me, it took a lot to make no provision for the flesh. But that is what we need to do. Look now at verse 8. Paul gives a fourth principle, and that is to live in the light. To live in the light. He says, For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Paul here goes back to a theme that should be very familiar to us that have been in Ephesians. In fact, look back in chapter 4, verse 17. Paul gives that second walk command, the second walk command of chapters 4 to 6, where he says, uh, walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk, walk no longer as an unbeliever. And then in verses 20 to 24, he gives the reason. Look at verse 22. He says, When you came to Christ, you were taught to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. See, he's saying there, when, when God saved you, you were changed, right? You're no longer the old man, he said. When you came to Christ, you were taught to put off the old man at that time. That old man is crucified, and you are now the new man, the new woman. Your soul has been transformed. It's been changed. You used to be dead in sin, but now you're what? You're alive in Christ. You used to be without hope and without God, but now you're part of His family. You used to be destined for wrath, but now you have eternal life. You used to be enslaved to sin, but now you are free. Right? Paul's been emphasizing this all through the first three chapters of who we are in Christ, of what we have in Christ, of how God has changed us now that we are in Jesus, of how He's transformed our hearts. And again here in Ephesians 5 verse 8, he says the same thing. Don't partake of sexual immorality because you were formerly darkness, but now, now you are light in the Lord. You used to be constantly in darkness. You used to be continually bound to lust. You, you used to repeatedly give in to immorality. You used to be enslaved, but not anymore. Now you are light. Now you are light. Act like it, he's saying. Your actions should reflect who you are, right? And that's why it keeps coming back to this truth, to remind us of that. This is who you are now. Your mindset needs to change You are light now. You're not darkness anymore. Where it used to be dark and and dank and putrid, now it is light and radiant. Spiritual photons have now invaded your heart. Your heart where there was once a dark moon incapable of generating any light is now a bright sun being fueled by the Holy Spirit. That's why John could boldly declare in 1 John 1, This is the message we've heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. And if we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Has it hit you yet, saint, all these months we've been spending in Ephesians together, that you don't have to give in to immorality because that's not you. That's not you anymore. If you realize you're now light, you're no longer darkness. God has made a change in your heart. He's transferred you, in fact, from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his son. You don't have to look at that image anymore. You don't have to pursue that sinful relationship. 
You don't have to think those wicked thoughts. You don't have to give in to self-gratification. That's not you anymore. You're a child of light, so walk like it. Tell it to yourself. Over and over, when you feel that temptation coming on, saying, I don't have to do that. I don't have to do that. I am light in the Lord. Meditate on it. Preach it to yourself. And we we keep going back to this truth because it's the key. This is it. This is how we can achieve holiness. This is the answer. This is the key to sexual purity. If you've gotten anything from Ephesians, and we're going to be in it for about a year, if you get anything from this letter, get this. Brothers and sisters, if, if you love the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've been forgiven, if you placed your faith in Him, you're not the same anymore. The old you is dead crucified it's a corpse and this truth this truth is the fuel that powers the engine of holiness this truth will empower you to achieve sexual purity and paul says here notice that you are light not because of anything in and of yourself you are light in the lord the power of the gospel Salvation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who by his blood has purchased atonement for your sins if you repent and believe and place your trust in him. And that repentance, that belief, that faith that God provides as he opens your eyes to see the truth, he changes you. The Holy Spirit invades and transforms. Paul said himself, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Is that verse true? Is it true? Come on. It is. You can even achieve sexual purity through him, him who strengthens you. Paul says in verse 9, if you are light, then what will come out of your life is not sexual immorality, but goodness and righteousness and truth, right? If you're looking for a a simple test of whether you're saved or not, you've got it right here in verse 9. Is your life characterized by the pursuit of these qualities? Not that we've arrived, but if you find yourself more inclined to a life of immorality rather than one which displays the godly fruit that he mentions here in verse 9, then you have reason to question whether or not God has invaded your life. So make sure that you have confessed your sins. Commit your life to Him and He will forgive. Now, if we look at verse 10, it seems a little bit abrupt. You've got that statement, that phrase, they're trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. As you go from verse 9 to verse 10, that's a little bit awkward. But that's because verse 9 is this parenthetical statement. Really, if you read from verse 8 to verse 10, it makes a little more sense in what he's saying here in verse 10. Walk as children of light, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Trying here is a, a word that means to test, to examine, to prove. And it's a participle, which means it's modifying the command to walk. What Paul is saying here is simply this. We walk in the light by examining, by testing, by understanding what pleases God. This is just another way to say that you walk in the light by seeking to glorify God in all circumstances. 2 Corinthians 5, 9, Paul said, Therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to the Lord, to Him. That, must, that needs to be our goal, right? My goal needs to please, be to please God and not myself. When you love someone, you try to do things that make them happy, right? You're not forced to. You don't feel like, oh, okay, I, yeah, I'm a Christian and I, I have to do these things for God. 
I have to flee sexual immorality because I'm supposed to. No, it's something you want to do. It's something you're driven to do. Yes, there's a struggle. We trip up, but we're continually moved forward by that affection for our Savior, by our love for the Father. I mean, how often do you ask yourself, what would please Christ? When, that, when you right at the beginning of that temptation, does that question come to your mind? What would please Jesus right now? And by, as I said at the very beginning, because at some point, like James 1 talks about, it's a hook in the water. Once you start moving toward the hook, it's over. It's just a matter of time before it grabs you and takes you. So we need to understand what it is that attracts us over to that part of the pond. Because you're not that dumb fish anymore. You're changed. No, you haven't evolved to a, a walking person on the land. You're just not that dumb fish anymore. You're new. You're transformed. I guess in a sense we are evolved into something else, right? We're totally changed. Physical evolution is untrue, but spiritual evolution... I'm probably getting in trouble, aren't I, Ed, for that one? (laughs) God's transformed you. You've been completely changed. Here it is. There's no transitional form. I saved myself. But that's the point. That's the point. And as a transformed person... My goal and desire, what I need to be asking myself and pursuing is, what will please my Father now? What will please Him? And that's why Paul says, walk in the light. And you do that by trying to please, by examining and looking at the things that would please your Father. So to experience freedom from immorality, you must, one, cultivate contentment. And secondly, to to realize the wrath, to feed not the flesh, to live in the light. And finally, to make purity a mission. What I mean by that is in verse, look at verse 11. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. I think Paul's telling us here that walking in the light isn't just about your personal holiness. It's not just about your walk. Paul's indicating here that your purity is also connected to your witness. Verse 11, Paul repeats the command he first gave in verse 7 by telling us not to participate in the the evil deeds, the unfruitful deeds of darkness, right? The fruitful wickedness. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say, flee from those things. Because otherwise we might be tempted to think or get the impression that we're not supposed to be around immoral people at all. But that's not the case. He also commands us not just to avoid the deeds of darkness, but to what? Expose them. Expose means to reprove, investigate, correct. We aren't just to stick our heads in the sand when it comes to immorality that's happening around us. We need to call sin what it is. You men that were there yesterday when Bobby was talking about this, what did he say, guys? Call sin, sin. Don't shy away from that. And all sexual behavior, all sexual behavior outside of marriage is not only inappropriate, it is wrong. Premarital sex is sin. Adultery is sin. Homosexuality is sin. Self-gratification is sin. Looking at pornography is sin. And we need to call it that. John the Baptist didn't shy away from pointing out or exposing Herod's adultery, did he? And we too, we cannot shrink away from identifying sexual immorality as sin. Our culture has become too PC. 
right? Many are backpedaling from exposing sin. But if there is any time, if there is any time that this needs to be exposed and demands that we speak, it is now, isn't it? And I don't think Paul meant that we're supposed to go around with our little ticket form and talking to everybody and expose everybody's sexual. So, okay, you do this, you do this, you do this, you do this. I don't think that's the spirit of what he's getting at here. I think what he's talking about here is the fact that the point is not to expose the sin so that they will clean up their act. It's to show them their sin so that they'll see a need for a Savior. Can I hear an amen on that? Right? They need to understand. If I don't know what I'm doing is wrong and is sinful against God, I have nothing to repent of. I have no need for Jesus. That's why Paul says expose it. Call sin what it is. Not because we're above people. We're in the same place. But by God's grace and salvation. He's not saying us to do so from a high and lofty position, but to come alongside those who are lost just as we are lost and to tell them, look, you're in sin. And if you don't deal with this, if you don't repent and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, God says you'll spend eternity apart from him in hell. This is wrong. Don't shy away from speaking. Remember what Paul said, that the law is what brings conviction for sin, right? I would not have come to know sin except through the law. I told you last week about a co-worker of mine that uh, was trying to get me to go to strip clubs with him. And he said, well, my wife said I can go as long as I don't touch. And I called him on it. I said, come on, you know that's not right. And you do, it does dishonor your wife. He's the same guy that was on many of those business trips I told you about where I, you know, I made a stand. I'm not going to participate in any immoral behavior. And my exposing the unfruitful deeds of darkness did irritate him. In fact, he ended up calling me his conscience. He said, man, I can't go anywhere when you're around. I hate it when you come on these trips. (laughs) You know what, though? It opened up a door for the gospel. We had a lot of conversations about it. Turns out he had a background in the church and he walked away from it. So he knew. He knew. And here's a guy poking that. So we have many opportunities. God will use you if you call sin what it is. Especially sexual sin. And we can expose it not only by what we say, but also by how we live. That's the point in verse 13. All things become visible when they are exposed by the light. In this context, what is light? Believers, right? You are light. Walk as children of light. What he's saying here is that be encouraged that, you know, as you seek purity, your own example can have an impact on those around you who don't know Christ. And a lot of times they won't tell you. But it does make a difference. Jesus said as much in Matthew 5, 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and excuse me, and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You see, their, their exposure, the exposure of their sin by the light of Christ in you can bring them to repentance. And that's what Paul says in verse 14 here. This is a call to unbelievers to repent. Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead. We saw that term before earlier in Ephesians, right? Who are the dead? Ephesians 2. 
You were dead in your trespasses and sins, right? Apart from Christ, we are dead. But Paul's calling here, he's saying, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead. In other words, recognize you are lost in sin and turn before it's too late. And again, right? A person can't repent from a sin if they don't understand that it's sin. They can't turn from something that is wrong unless they know it is wrong. They can only come to the light if they see that they are in darkness. And so, Paul says, and Christ will shine on you. When the light of the world reveals himself to them, they will become light. And they will be saved. So you see, verses 13 and 14 is saying that, you know, your purity is significant. It has significant implications, not only in your own life, but also in the lives of those around you. The key reason that we're to flee immorality isn't just because we are light, isn't just because God hates it, isn't just because it is shameful, but also because it impacts our evangelism. If we're caught up in sexual sin, then our conviction to expose immorality is blunted, isn't it? If you name the name of Christ and are involved in sexual immorality, it's like, it's like a dull blade trying to saw down a hard oak. What impact for the gospel do you think someone has who says they're a Christian and then abandons their spouse to go shack up with someone else? What testimony is given by someone who says you can love Jesus and also live out a homosexual lifestyle? How bright is the light coming from the person who's regularly looking at pornography and at the same time is telling others that Jesus can free you from your sin? Beloved, for the sake of God's name and for the sake of so many souls on their way to hell, we need to be a holy people. We need to be set apart. That's why Paul says immorality should not even be a whisper, not even a hint among you. There must, there must not even be a dust particle of sexual impurity among God's people. You are to be a light to the lost, so make purity your mission. Because our society is so lost, isn't it? Our culture is in great darkness. Sexual immorality is destroying this country. And God will respond. I think He is responding. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Right? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals will inherit the kingdom of God. Unrepentant sexual sin promises an eternity in hell. But I love the next verse. Paul says this, And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Amen. Your freedom from sexual immorality has been bought and paid for by the blood of Christ. So confess that immorality. Cultivate contentment. Realize the wrath. Feed not the flesh. Live in the light. Make purity your mission. And then you will experience the full freedom from sexual sin. Such were some of you, but not anymore. Walk in the light. Walk in freedom. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice on our behalf that can free us from... (laughs) Free us from the enslaving power of immorality and lust. 
Thank you, Father, that you offer forgiveness in your Son and that you desire us, Lord, to be a holy people, a people free from any immorality in our lives. And, Lord, we want to do that. We struggle like Paul and have this desire. We want to please you, and, and yet we still struggle in the flesh, which is waging war against our souls. Oh, Father, help us. Oh, Father, help us to understand. Enable us to apply these principles from your word. Give us clear insight in what it means to be light. Lord, that we may be motivated never to walk in darkness. Lord, help us to understand what it means to to be content and then enable us to pursue that in our lives, to, to make no provision for our flesh, to, Lord, walk in the light, to realize how you feel about sexual immorality. Lord, may we be fully repentant. May you work on our hearts. And I pray, Lord, if there are any here that have not made a commitment to love and follow the Lord Jesus Christ, that in this moment now, just like you did with Augustine, pierce their soul, grant them repentance. You are a great God. You are loving and kind and merciful. You are holy. We appreciate and love you. In Jesus' name, amen.